The news for today starts with this piece on an ongoing epidemic. The influenza epidemic is increasing in the city of Melbourne and suburbs, and medical experts agree that if there is a continuation of the unpleasant weather which prevailed today, the disease is likely to spread rapidly. Doctors Greswell, Neild and Springthorpe have drawn up a circular to be sent out tomorrow to all members of the medical profession, inviting answers on points relating to the prevalence of the disease and the treatment found most effectual. The replies will be collected and submitted to the Board of Public Health every week so that a comprehensive account of the disease may be procured for purposes of reference and comparison. From the Evening Journal in Adelaide, on the date of Wednesday 9th April 1890, this was the news. This was the news is a fortnightly podcast that takes the news on this day, but many years ago, and shares it with you in one news update. Scouring old Aussie newspapers, I'm Broderick Matthews with the news from the past brought into the present. Yes, today's news comes to us from April 9th in 1890, a period in time where the influenza epidemic, known as the Asiatic flu then or the Russian flu, was travelling around the world and it had just started to reach Australia, where concerns were about, which is quite reasonable considering that that flu ended up killing one million people around the world. So while Australians were worried about getting the flu, they were also worried about jobs as a depression was starting to begin across the colony. Yes, after a property boom across Australia in the 1880s, banks expanded their lending. But a property price crash in 1889 led to the beginnings of a depression that would last further into the 1890s. The following was posted around employment in the Australian Star on this day back in 1890. In view of the general depression prevailing in the labour market of the colony and the large number of persons at present in want of employment, we have decided to publish, free of charge, notices of situations vacant and situations wanted. Here are some of the situations wanted. Man, young, married, milk, drive, used horses. Another list, man, young, any capacity, strong, respectable. Or this one, servant, general, young girl, respectable, suburbs preferred. Or how about youth, respectable, groom, garden, drive, useful, references available. Or finally, tuition imparted, respectable young man, private family, lieu of board and lodging. Some interesting situations there. Or how about these ones that are vacant? Cook and laundress, Protestant, train fare paid. Or how about this similar situation? Cook and laundress, young, who can milk? Or finally, servant, general, good wages. Well, definitely some interesting advertisements there for jobs on offer. I don't know what makes a Protestant cook better than a Catholic one. I'm not sure you could advertise that for today. But certainly some ads there to take note of if you're uh, out there looking for work. Meanwhile, we have been talking about things happening across Australia, but of course at this point in time, in 1890, Australia wasn't Australia. And the following was published on Federation plans in the Enquirer and Commercial News in Perth. 
The resolutions passed at the Federation Conference recently held in Melbourne will be submitted as early as possible in the coming sessions of all the parliaments of the Australian colonies, including that of New Zealand. These resolutions will include a recommendation for the appointment of delegates to the National Convention, which will be held either in Sydney or Melbourne. The delegates will number 50, seven each from New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia, Queensland, Tasmania and New Zealand, and four each from Western Australia and Fiji. Yes, folks, you heard right there, New Zealand and Fiji joining the original National Convention talked about as part of Australia, but of course it never came to be. The next article is entitled Baby Farming with a Vengeance. The revelation in the Ray Hamilton case that babies can be purchased in New York for £2 each and no questions asked has caused the world to send out Nellie Bly, one of its stall of women reporters, to try and buy babies. She visited several tenements and found not the slightest difficulty in purchasing as many babies as she required, at prices ranging from one to three sovereigns. The youngest babies brought the highest prices. One was offered her cheap, for cash, only two hours old. The baby sellers have provided bogus mothers who give a written consent to the sale of their infants. In no instance was any inquiry made as to why the baby was bought or what was to become of it. Live chickens are not sold in our markets with much less ceremony. And that US story was reported in the Daily Northern Argus from Rockhampton, Queensland. It's worth noting at this point too that baby farming wasn't a practice unique to America. It was happening across England and in the Australian colonies too. In fact, in the 19th century across Australia, the most prevalent murder victims were babies due to this abhorrent practice. We're going to take a short break now and hear from these advertisements. Coffers to the front. Take time by the forelock ere that rasping, hacky cough of yours carries you where so many consumptives have preceded you. Lose no time, but procure a bottle of the rational remedy for lung and bronchial disease. Scott's emulsion of cod liver oil with hyperphosphites of lime and soda. Rely upon it that it will afford you speedy and efficient aid. Not only is it a pulmonic of surpassing merit, but it compensates for the drain of vitality, which is a most formidable accompaniment of lung disorders. Besides arresting the progress of consumption, bronchitis and asthma, it infuses unwanted vigour into an enfeebled system and tends to fill out the hollow places in an angular frame. Ladies in delicate health will find it a palatable means of adding roundness to a figure robbed of its contour by the inroad of marasmus or other wasting disorders. A scrofulous tendency may be successfully combated with it and it is a capital thing for feeble children. Sold by all chemists. No breakfast, no man, is an old saying, but those who cannot make a hearty morning meal will find Cabri's Cocoa an absolutely pure and refined beverage. Comforting, exhilarating and sustaining. A worldwide favourite is Cabri's Cocoa. It is absolutely pure. This and its high quality have placed it in the front rank of beverages. Drink Cadbury's Cocoa. 
And as we continue with the news from April 9th, 1890, we head into transportation woes across the country with this story of a buggy accident in Ballarat coming from the Argus in Victoria. Another buggy accident happened to a party of Ballarat residents yesterday. Mr Skews, Draper, of the firm Cocking and Skews, was driving a pair of rather spirited horses into Buninyong, and the animals somehow got frightened and bolted through the township and ended by running into a fence, the result being a general collapse. Mr Skews was taken up insensible and, together with the other occupants of the buggy, taken to Dr Longdon's residence. But that gentleman being away from home, Dr Salmon of Ballarat was telegraphed for. Upon examination, Mr Skews was found to be suffering from a severe injury to his back. The other injured persona were Mrs Skews, dislocation of the collarbone, badly bruised hip and a black eye, Miss Skews, injury to her hip, Miss Edmonds, badly cut face, and Mrs Pinney, severe shock to the system. They are as speedily as possible attended to. So I'd hate to think what speedily as possible means in that day when the doctor from another town over in Ballarat was telegraphed for. Telegraph's not necessarily the most instant of communication to respond to, but we can only hope they weren't suffering too long. Meanwhile, this piece of a train on fire from the Cumberland Mercury in Parramatta, New South Wales. One of the cars of a train which left National Park between 5 and 6 o'clock on Monday night was observed when passing Tempe to be on fire. Word was immediately telephoned to Marrickville to stop and examine the train. This was done when it was found that the second or third car was on fire. The carriage, which was full to overflowing with passengers, was immediately cleared and the station officers set to work and in about 20 minutes the fire was extinguished. It was a most fortunate thing that the fire was observed by the station master at Tempe, for had he been on the upside of his station, the fire could not have been seen by him, and fearful catastrophe might have resulted, as the train was a through one to Sydney. It's hard to believe that a whole carriage is on fire with people inside it, but there you go. Turning the page to the Daily Northern Argus in Rockhampton, a wagonette capsized when crossing the flooded waters at North Rockhampton yesterday morning to catch the train. Several ladies who were passengers were precipitated into the water, but escaped with nothing more serious than a good wetting. Finally, speaking of a good wetting, this story in the Evening Journal from South Australia of Sir Henry Park's return to Adelaide. The New South Wales ministers who have been visiting Broken Hill returned to Adelaide by the express train on Tuesday afternoon, including Sir Henry Parks. The party breakfasted at Tarawi and then entered a first-class carriage, which was reserved for them. From there onward, the ride was of a very comfortless nature. The rain which fell penetrated the roof and soaked the compartments. Sir Henry got wet through and for hours held up an umbrella to ward off the continuous drippings. Speaking of the journey to the reporter, Sir Henry jocularly remarked, You may tell the railway commissioners from me that I will never travel on the South Australian railways again unless they provide me with a boat. Over the page, and we have a couple more stories now that give us an interesting look back into the 1890s and the view of people from different countries with some articles that potentially could be considered a little racist now, but I'm going to read them as they were printed back in 1890. The first, from the Telegraph in Queensland. The Chinaman's Dog. 
Edmund Ward was charged on remand at the city police court yesterday with stealing a dog, the property of a Chinaman, in Charlotte Street on April 1st. After the owner had given his evidence through O.R.C. interpreter, the accused pleaded guilty to the charge. Mr Pinnock said he supposed the accused thought it was only a Chinaman he was robbing and that we Britishers are so superior that it did not signify what crime was committed against Chinamen. It's a little bit of a superiority attitude there from the white Australian. The article continues, In consideration of the accused having a wife and child, the bench, instead of sending him to jail, find him in the sum of £5, or in default, three months. The second reflection of White Australia back in 1890 comes with this article on the coloured brethren from the barrier miner in Broken Hill. Every Sunday night, a coloured man, not to be outbeaten by the Salvationists, erects his kerosene lamp opposite the Australian club and Christy minstrelises various strange hymns, interspersed with conversational warnings to a jeering crowd of white men. The other evening, the promiscuous audience, with a view of testifying to the saintly qualities of Sambo, whitened him with a pound of superfine flour, but the darky, indifferent to their flowery attentions, peppered and salted them with the threats of a place where flour will burn the same as Mazina and human hot roast. Sambo is evidently impressed with the necessity of his warning, the thoughtless youth of Broken Hill, but we do not like the manner or fashion of his delivery. And though we denounce the contemptible scoundrels who hurl flower bags at his woolly head, we think that he would do much better to confine his religious ceremonies to the privacy of his bedroom and not howl mutilated sentences of Tommy Rot at passers-by in Argent Street. Mm, Certainly plenty to make you cringe in that article, not only with what happened, but the words they used too. But for me, this is a reason to look back at 1890 to realise how things were and we can learn from it into the future. Let's have a short break now with this advertisement. A is an article well known to fans. Burford and Sons are its makers by name. Continuously giving to householders all. Delight, satisfaction in cottage and hall. Everyone uses it. Would you know why? For no one disputes it's the best you can buy. Grocers all keep it. They judge it the best. Having found by experience it stands every test. In city, in country, in village or town. Just ask the question, is it well known? Knights, squires and baronets, lords, dukes and earls. Ladies of all ranks prefer it to pearls. Mothers of families, thrifty housewives, no other will use for the rest of their lives. Oh, then what can it be? Read on, my friend. Peruse the remaining few lines to the end. Cue, take your cue from me in this rhyme. Repair to your grocers, quick, now is the time. Signal soap is the answer, buy if you're wise. The wonders it works will soon open your eyes. Universally favoured, it still leads the van, vanquishing all previous efforts of man. Worldwide, its virtues, fame and repute, extremely certain all people to suit. You'll find signal soap, signal saving of funds, zealous to please all, are Burford and Sons. (laughs) 
We're going to finish this news update from April 9th, 1890 with a bit of social news and gossip. But before we do, here's the sport. This piece from the sportsman in Melbourne, Victoria. Wrestling news. Professor W. Miller against Duncan C. Ross for £400 and the Australian Championship. There was not a large attendance at the Theatre Royal on Saturday afternoon to witness the wrestling match between Professor W. Miller, Australia's champion athlete, and Duncan C. Ross, champion all-round athlete of America. The conditions were the best three in five falls in the Greco-Roman style for £200 a side and the championship of Australia. The agreement with the Theatre Royal Management had a clause to the effect that the wrestlers were to be on the stage not later than three o'clock, under a penalty of £5 for every ten minutes over that time. Consequently, the wrestlers were on the sawdust-padded carpet punctually on time. We're going to condense this article a little bit and I'll summarise the first two rounds. The first fall went to Miller with the full Nelson in a time of 14 minutes and 22 seconds. Just as the fall was gained, Miller accidentally poked his finger in Ross's eye, causing him some pain. The second fall went to Ross, though, with a body hold in a time of 13 minutes and 30 seconds. We pick up the article again at the third bout. First arm and neck work, Ross kept trying the fling, but only to come on his knees. Miller made a dash to get behind, but Ross turned quickly. Miller forced Ross across the stage, striving for a body hold, but Ross braced and put the stop on. The next time, the professor was not to be denied. He brought Ross down heavily and at once began to work for the far arm hold. In trying for a Nelson, he missed and nearly came on all fours as Ross broke away. Now Ross was on top with his arms round Miller's ribs, which he changed to a strong underhold. They struggled to their feet with the same hold on where Miller broke out. There was a lot of slapping and neck hold. Then Miller got a quick body hold and down they came. Miller went to work, got the hammerlock on and was turning Ross over. The latter yelled out, hold on, but Miller still clung to his grip, causing Ross great pain. Ross's trainer rushed to his principal's aid and crying, I give the fall, pushed Miller off, the professor rolling to the edge of the carpet. Then Miller's trainer came to the rescue and there were the preliminary elements of a lively scene, one blow at least being struck. Then the trainer went to Ross's help and placing his foot on his shoulder with a quick pull reduced the partial dislocation. Two falls to Miller, this time with the hammerlock in a time of 9 minutes 45 seconds. When Ross had returned to his dressing room, a medical man was sent for. Surgeon Moore at once gave it as his opinion that a partial dislocation had taken place and that it would be utterly impossible for Ross to continue wrestling. In response to loud calls for Miller, he and the referee went in front of the curtain to the audience, where the referee then declared Professor Miller the winner. Ross is now going about with his arm in a sling. He'll be unable to use it for a week or two. Some very animated sports writing there, really setting the scene. Wrapping up the news now with the social pages from the Barangong Arcus talking about the Easter holidays. Easter tide at Young went off quietly. The amusements during Easter Monday in town were confined to picnics of the Wesleyan and Presbyterian bodies. 
In the former, Mr Burrows, the Sunday school superintendent, marshalled the children under his charge at the Wesleyan Church in Lynch Street, and from there they marched to the Pleasure Ground on the Spring Creek Valley over Camp Hill. The number on the ground was a large one, and all did their utmost to make the young ones happy, and for that end, foot racing for prizes, consisting of literary works and dainty eatables, were provided. After the indulgence in a pleasant day's outing, all came away highly delighted. The Presbyterians also held their annual picnic on Monday, and at an early hour, the Sabbath school scholars were seen to be congregating in front of the church, where Mr Dixon and Mr Johnson were ready to receive all the young people who had come out to enjoy the pleasures provided for the day. The place selected for picnicking was Mr Russell's paddock, which provided a very convenient sporting ground for all who had patronised the spot. The children were well looked after in all their amusements, as well as in their appetising requirements by the Sabbath school teachers, who were heartily upheld by the assistance of the ladies and gentlemen of the congregation. And with the closing of the paper, it only remains for me to wish you all a happy Easter. Stay home and stay safe. And this closes the update for April 9th, 1890. This was the news. This was The News is a podcast spoken and edited by Broderick Matthews. All source material is taken from the reference newspapers and found online through the National Library of Australia's Trove website. Links to each of the articles mentioned today can be found in the show notes. The theme music is from Beethoven's Symphony No. 6 and sourced under public domain from newsopen.org. If you enjoyed today's show, make sure to subscribe and review it on iTunes, Spotify or your favourite podcasting app. This Was The News can be followed on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And any email correspondence should be sent to thiswasthenews at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to today's episode. The next episode will be out in a fortnight, released on Thursday, 23 April. I'm Broderick Matthews, and this was The News. The News.